Let's go ahead and get started. Thank you guys for being here again on your last day. I know that this has been a full week, and I'm sure you guys are tired, but um, hang in there with me. we got one more lesson. Just a, a quick recap. First day, we, first off, we're talking about a story-shaped life, and on day one, we talked about how your life is a story, your story should be shared with others, and your story should be shaped by God's story, in other words, the Bible. Uh, quick, quick book blurb, actually. Um, there are two books that uh, kind of from my class that are on the table out there that I highly recommend. One is called The Story of God's Love, which is basically the Jesus Storybook Bible without the pictures, okay? And uh, it's a, just a fantastic walkthrough of the story of Scripture in really like simple, beautiful language. And the other one is called How to Read the Bible Book by Book. That is a fantastic book. It's not like the kind of book you just like read through from beginning to end. It's a reference book. But let's say you want to read through the book of Exodus. And, you know, but you need to kind of know like what it's about and get a little context. You read the, the chapter in there on Exodus, and it gives you like a breakdown of the themes and an outline of the book and what to look for and uh, how to find Christ in the book. Okay, it is a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. It's, it's so, how to read the, how to read the Bible book by book. Okay. Uh, and then the other one is the story of God's love. So go check them out. Uh, they're, they're right next to the door, like where the, the book table is, right next to that main door. Okay. Uh, so today, or actually yesterday, let me continue on. Yesterday we talked about the false narratives of the world, the false stories that Satan is trying to sell us. And at the end we talked about how one of the worst lies he tells us is the lie that the Bible is unreliable, that you can't trust it. And I read to you from Matthew chapter 7 that says that when Jesus taught the scriptures, he taught as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And what is the root word of authority? Author. Jesus taught the scriptures as the author of the scriptures, and that's what we're going to hit on today. Um, let me pray for us, and we'll get started. God, I thank you so much for bringing us here and for the fantastic week we've had. I pray that today would, be, um, would also be fruitful in, in our opportunities to know you more, to know each other better, to enjoy your creation, and to worship you in all things. And, and God, I pray that you would speak through me now and give me words, calm my own fears and anxieties. Um, let this be a time for your light and your word to shine through. And also, again, my words um, by themselves don't do anything. And so I pray that your spirit would carry these words uh, into our hearts so that we would believe them, so that I would believe them as I'm speaking them, and, and so that you would be glorified right now and that we would um, love you more when we leave this room. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Back around the turn of the century, in 1900, around 1900, there was an author in England by the name of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had a dream of being a famous writer one day, and what he really was passionate about was writing historical fiction. He was very inspired by people like Charles Dickens, and uh, he wanted to write historical fiction novels, like big sweeping epics. That was what fired him up. That was what he felt like would put him on a level of like the elite authors of all time. Like that, that was his goal. That was his aim, and he felt like that 
a historical fiction story would do that for him. However, when he hadn't published anything, he was, uh, he was quite broke. And he could barely afford to pay the bills. And he had to do something to make some money. And a local magazine, Strand Magazine, contacted him about writing a series of short stories in the detective genre. And he hated the detective genre, but he needed to make some money. So he created a character by the name of Sherlock Holmes. And he wrote several short stories about this investigator named Sherlock Holmes. And it became a cultural phenomenon. All of London was freaking out over Sherlock Holmes. They couldn't get enough of him. They were crazy about the stories. And Strand Magazine was making more money than they ever made. And so they kept commissioning him to write these stories. And they were publishing him. And they were saying, look, you've got to keep, you keep churning out more. Well, he was becoming famous. And he was becoming rich. But he wasn't doing what he wanted to do. And frankly, he hated writing the detective stories because for a couple reasons. Number one, in order for him to write about Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had to be smarter than Sherlock Holmes <laughs> in order to write the stories. And he had to plot out every single part of the story so intricately that it took up a lot of time to plan out these, these mysteries that he's creating. And it was so time consuming, he didn't have time to do anything else that he wanted to. And finally, he decided, all right, I've become famous. I've made my money. It's time to move on. So in one of his more famous stories, he killed off Sherlock Holmes with his nemesis, uh, Moriarty. And all of London went into an uproar. And they said, you can't kill Sherlock Holmes. He's the greatest character of all time. You have to bring him back. And Strand Magazine came to, to uh, Arthur Conan Doyle and said, uh, you can't do that. You've got to bring him back. And so under contract, they forced him to resurrect Sherlock Holmes and bring him back to life. And he continued writing about Sherlock Holmes for the rest of his life. And towards the end of his life, he sadly said this, that one of the greatest regrets of his life was that he ever invented Sherlock Holmes. He said, um, I believe that if I had never touched Holmes, my position in literature would have been a much more commanding one. He hated Sherlock Holmes. And he created him. Isn't that sad? Like, I hear that story and it kind of like, it kind of um, deflates the, the aura of Sherlock Holmes a little bit to know that the very one who created him wished that he had it. Sherlock Holmes is one of the most famous characters in all of the Western canon, and his very own author wishes he had never made him. I think one of the reasons that story bothers me so much is because deep down inside, I have this fear that my author feels the same way about me. And I wonder if maybe you feel that way too. Deep down inside, we look at our lives, and we look at our struggles, and we look at how we constantly mess up, we constantly sin, we constantly rebel against God. And deep down inside, we're thinking to ourselves, I bet God just wishes he'd never made me, never created me. I bet he regrets having invented me as one of his characters. What I want to tell you this morning is the exact opposite. I want you to see how much your author adores you, how much he loves you. So we're going to talk about three things. Number one, your story is not an accident. Number two, your story was written in love. And number three, your story has an ending. First off, I'm going to read to you from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. I'm going to read it from the New American Standard Version because I love the way they phrase this. And the New American Standard is actually a very accurate version, okay? 
Um, so this is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The author of Hebrews is encouraging us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Why? Because he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Point number one, your story is not an accident. I'm a huge fan of Pixar. I love Pixar movies. And I read an article several years ago uh, that the creators of Pixar wrote, and it was uh, a list of 21 tips for storytellers. The, the, the article was like intended for authors and storytellers and writers. And they put just 21 short little one, two sentence tips. One would be like, uh, a coincidence that gets your character into trouble is fun. A coincidence that gets your character out of trouble is cheating. It's like, oh, that's a great tip. Like, there's little things like that. One of the tips they gave was this. When you finish your first draft, go back, combine characters so that every character in your story matters. In other words, when you finish writing your first draft, you might look at it and say, this character over here is like just kind of floating over here. He's kind of hanging out. He's not really serving any purpose to the plot. So combine him or delete him, like move them around so that every character in your story matters. And if you see a Pixar movie, you know that every single character in any Pixar movie serves a purpose. There's a reason they're there. They matter. Now, if the creators of Pixar can figure this out about storytelling, how much more do you think the creator of the universe knows that he doesn't waste characters, that every character in his story matters? And you know what that means? It means that every single one of you plays a role and a purpose in this story that God is telling. You are not here by accident, is what I'm trying to say. Your story is not an accident. Psalm 139, verses 14 through 16. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, he's saying, woven in my mother's womb, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. You know what the psalmist is saying? He's saying that before I was even born, when I was in my mother's womb, God, you wrote down in your book every one of my days before they had even existed. I love that. It said, the, the psalmist is basically saying, God, you are the author, and you have already written down my story. That means your story is not an accident. If God himself wrote down your story in his book before you were even born, it means that you are here for a reason. And I'm not saying this so that you can walk away from this feeling better about yourself or so that your self-esteem might be lifted. I'm actually saying this to humble you because I want you to see that life is about more than just how you feel in the moment because I know that our emotions can drive us so often. Emotions are not bad, by the way, but sometimes 
we wake up in the morning and maybe we feel like an outcast. We feel like we don't belong. We feel lonely. We feel dirty. We feel broken. We feel like we don't serve a purpose. And I want you to see that life is about more than just how you feel. Life is about leaning into the truth of Scripture. And the truth is this. God has written your story in His book from before you were born. You are not here by accident. Number two, your story was written in love. When I was young, I used to ask my pastor or Sunday school teachers or other people, adults, this one question that always baffled me. How does God hear all of our prayers at the same time? And the answer I would always get was, well, you know, he's, it's, it's kind of like, it's, you know, he's God. Yeah. That was it. <laughs> he's God, and it, yeah, that's, that's how he does it. He's just, he's just God. You're just going to have to live with that. It's not a bad answer. But when I was in college, I read an essay by C.S. Lewis that answered that question better than anything I've ever heard. And this is what he says. He said, if God is the author of our stories, then he is not bound by the same time which we are bound by. As the author, he exists outside of our time. And so let me give you an example of what that means. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take an example from one of C.S. Lewis's books, The Chronicles of Narnia, one of the best series of books ever written. And in the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and yes, I know that some of you may be thinking it's the magician's nephew, but I'm going to say it's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe because that's the one he wrote first, and I like to read them in the order in which he wrote them. Uh, so in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there is this scene where the beaver is telling the children about Aslan, and they hear the name Aslan for the first time, which, by the way, side note, that's why you should read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe first, because if you already read The Magician's Nephew, you already know who Aslan is, and that moment is ruined in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Okay, back to the story. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, they hear the name Aslan for the first time, and he says every one of the children had a different reaction at the same time. Edmund felt a sudden sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if a delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. That all happened at the same time. Now, I want you to step out of Narnia for a second, and I want you to maybe step into a, a musty old office somewhere in Oxford, and there's a desk and a lamp, and C.S. Lewis is sitting there writing this story. I don't know where he wrote this story, by the way. Let's just imagine that, okay? He's writing down this story, and he gets to this part, and he stops, and he says, each one of these kids is going to have a different reaction at the same time, but I'm going to deal with each one of them one at a time. So how does Edmund respond to the name of Aslan? And he stops, and maybe he walks around a little bit. Maybe he paces. Maybe he goes and reads something else and comes back. Maybe he keep, continues to stew over it, and then he says, okay, Edmund is going to feel a sensation of mysterious horror. And he writes that down. And then he moves on to Peter. In the same, in the same second of Narnia time, he's taking all this time to deal with each one of them individually because he is not bound by Narnian time. He exists outside of that time as the author. You know what that means? It means that when you pray to God, it's not like... He's got a thousand phones ringing or a billion phones ringing at the same time and he's trying to figure out which one's most important and you're probably not even going to get heard. Okay, that's not what's happening. He's not running around frantically in the throne room trying to answer the most important prayers. When you pray to God, your author puts time on hold and it is as if 
You get the undivided attention of the creator of the universe every time you pray. That's how much he loves you. Your story was written in love because your author is waiting on pins and needles for you to come to him and say, God, I need to talk to you. And he is all in. Undivided attention. Infinite amount of time to spend with you. That's how much he loves you. But it goes further than that. All right, I'm geeking out this morning. I'm talking about Sherlock Holmes, C.S. Lewis. Let's talk about Lord of the Rings. Okay. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, is one of C.S. Lewis's best friends. And um, he wrote a story called Lord of the Rings, which is basically about this hobbit named Frodo who has to destroy the Ring of Power before the Dark Lord Sauron can get his hands on it. Because if Sauron gets it, he's going to destroy all of Middle-earth. And so Frodo goes on this quest to destroy it. And this ring is so powerful that whenever any of the heroes see it, like the most powerful people in Middle-earth, they see that ring. They can't even look at it. They can't touch it. They're like, get that away from me. It's too tempting. That's how powerful this ring is. When Frodo puts it on, he becomes invisible. Okay, this is, a, this is the most powerful weapon in all of Middle-earth. And there is a scene in the first book that is not in the movie. Frodo and his friends have just left the Shire and they enter into these woods and they're getting attacked by trees and ghosts and stuff and they're about to die and they're rescued by this strange man named Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil is basically this hermit who just lives in the middle of the woods. He sings nonsense songs all the time. He just kind of walks around jovially. He's married to a river goddess. He's been there for like thousands of years. Like He's a strange character. I think he was so weird that Peter Jackson was just like, all right, we're, we're not going to deal with this guy. He's kind of weird. Okay. So he comes and he rescues the hobbits, brings them back. He's singing songs the whole way, and they're trying to figure out who he is. He sits down with him. Frodo tells him about his journey to destroy the ring, and Tom says this. Let me see that ring. Frodo hands it to him. He looks at it, examines it, flicks it up in the air, and in midair, it vanishes. And Frodo's like, what? And the hobbits are all staring at him. And then he reaches behind his back and pulls it out. He's like, he's doing magic tricks with the ring of power. Like it's no big deal. And he's just laughing and singing the whole time. He's just such a jovial character. Well, then he puts the ring on his finger and he doesn't disappear. And Frodo and the hobbits are freaking out at this point. They're like, who is this guy? Then Tom hands the ring back to Frodo and says, all right, let's go eat. And they walk over there. Well, Frodo's suspicious. Frodo thinks that Tom switched the ring out on him. And so Frodo sneaks over to the corner when nobody's watching. And he puts the ring on to test it. And sure enough, he disappears. It is the ring of power. And as he is standing in the corner, invisible, Tom looks over at him and says, Frodo, I see you over there with the ring on. Why don't you come back over here, take it off, and come join us for supper? He sees Frodo when he's invisible. And the hobbits are just astounded at this. Okay, so Tom Bombadil is in this book for like two chapters, and then he's barely mentioned for the rest of the story. He really serves no other purpose in the story. He's just thrown in there for a couple chapters and then taken out, and that's it. It is such a weird interlude. Now... Critics and uh, interviewers and people, when, whenever this book came out, they would come to Tolkien and they would say, hey, tell us about Tom Bombadil. He's so interesting. Like, who is this guy? And Tolkien would always say, you know, this is just a mystery that you're going to have to live with. Like, he would never explain it. And, and some people would say, well, is Tom Bombadil the most powerful character in all of Middle Earth? And here was Tolkien's response. 
He said it's not that he's the most powerful. It's that he exists outside the powers of Middle Earth. They don't affect him the way they affect everyone else. And although Tolkien never confirmed this, he also never denied it. And many scholars have theorized that Tom Bombadil is J.R.R. Tolkien. That Tolkien loved Middle Earth. He loved his creation so much that he wrote himself into the story. And I think I know where he got the idea. Tolkien was a Christian. He loved the Bible. And the greatest story that was ever told, the author of that story looked down on his creation and he said, I love this so much, I'm going to write myself into this story. And on a cold night in Bethlehem, the baby cried and the world was changed because the author had become the word made flesh and he dwelt among us. That's how much you are loved your author wrote himself into the story because he loves us so much. And he loves his creation. Hebrews 12, 2. This is what we read earlier. We are called to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The cross is not a joyful event, guys. It is the most sorrowful, unbelievably painful, agonizing thing we could ever possibly imagine. Add that to the fact that all of sin and wrath of God was poured on Jesus in that moment. There's nothing worse than the cross in that moment. And yet Hebrews says that he endured the cross for the joy that was before him. What was that joy? In order to know what that joy is, we need to look back at Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 was the prophecy of Jesus dying on the cross. This was written hundreds of years before Jesus existed. And this is what it says, verses 10 and 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, Jesus, and he has put Jesus to grief. And when Jesus' soul makes an offering for guilt, Jesus shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. By the way, when I was saying Jesus, that's not what it says. I'm inserting that into the pronoun so that you can follow uh, what's going on here. He says, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, Jesus, Jesus shall see and be satisfied. What does Jesus see in this moment? Who are the offspring of Jesus? Jesus wasn't married. He had no children. So who are his offspring? His offspring are the children of God who came after him. You and me. Do you know what this is saying? It's saying in that moment, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, the author of all creation is hanging on the cross. He looks forward through the annals of time, and he sees you. And me, his offspring, the children who will come after him because of what he did on the cross. He sees us. And it says his soul is satisfied. What do you do when you're satisfied? You smile. Jesus looks at us on the cross. And that is the joy that is set before him. That's how much you are loved by your author. Not only did he write himself into the story he became the curse so that we could have life everlasting. And in that moment, in that very moment, he looks ahead and sees us and goes, that's why I'm doing it. It's worth it. Because that's how much I love my creation and my children and my offspring. Your story was written in love. It was also written in blood. Lastly, Number three, your story has an ending. 
2007, I went to my first RYM camp at Laguna Beach. And I was in college. I was chaperoning with First Press, Tuscumbia, Alabama. And uh, Richie Sessions was actually the worship leader at that camp. How about that? Isn't that cool? He's a fantastic musician, in case you didn't know that. Um, so that was my first RYM camp. During that week, something, uh, something special was happening around the world, though. The release of the seventh Harry Potter book was coming out. And I had never read the books, but earlier that summer, one of my friends, Kurt, uh, introduced the books to me because he had been reading them since he was a little kid. And he's like, man, you got to read these books. They're awesome. And so he gave me the first book, and I was like, these books are kind of big. They're kind of long. I'm not the best reader in the world. So, you know, maybe I'll just kind of slowly dive into these, and maybe by next year I'll be reading the seventh book. You know, i got plenty of time. Well, in about six weeks, I read all six books. And then I went to RYM and uh, had, like, the most agonizing, painful waiting experience I've ever had in my life because even just those few days of waiting for the seventh book was too much. I couldn't handle it. And I was, like, about to die on the inside. I had to get back to Hogwarts so badly. Um, I was addicted at that point. And so, anyway, the camp is over. By the way, when, when that book was released, like, it was a cultural phenomenon. People were, like lining up, wrapping around bookstores and buildings like it was at midnight because everybody couldn't wait to get their hands on that seventh book. So anyway, after the camp, I go with my friend Kurt and uh, because he couldn't go on opening night either. So we go and we each get our copy of the book. And as we buy it, I'm standing next to him. And this is what he does. He opens the book, flips to the end, (laughs) reads the last page, (sighs) closes the book, goes back to page one and starts reading. And I'm like, Kurt, what are you doing? You just ruined Harry Potter. You've been waiting your whole life for this moment. He started reading these books when he was a little kid. Like he read them like as they were released, every single one of them. Look, what are you doing? You ruined the end. And he looked at me. He said, I know, but I've grown to love these characters so much. They've grown up with me. And I just, I had to know that everything was going to be okay. <laughs> and I, I, I get that. I would have never ruined the end of that story, but I get where he's coming from because that's actually very human of us. It's actually very human of us to to want to know the end of the story. As much as we fight against that, there is something inside of us that longs for that. Your author knows that you long for that. And so you know what he did? He told you the end of the story. The book of Revelation tells you where your story is going. It is beautiful. It's incredible. And if we put our trust in Jesus and the blood that he shed for us, we will have that end to our story. Because he wants us to know that even in our darkest moments, in our worst agony, the story's not over, and there is light at the end. I've been picking on Disney a lot this week, so let me tell you a Disney movie that I love. Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast it's a fantastic movie. There's two versions, all right? There's the animated version from the 90s and the, the live-action version that was made a couple years ago. Both are good. The animated version is better. But there's one scene in the, the newer movie that I actually like more. It's at the very end. Now, quick summary here. There's this prince who lives in a castle who's really mean, and this witch curses him and turns him into a beast. And all of his servants who live in the castle are also fall under the curse and they become talking pieces of furniture, okay, basically. And in the animated movie, this is how it goes. The beast has to find love before the last petal falls from the flower, or else they all stay in that condition forever. 
They stay as talking pieces of furniture. The live action movie takes a step further. It says that if the beast doesn't find love by the time the flower falls, then they actually die because the pieces of furniture, the servants, they are slowly losing their humanity. And when that last petal falls, they will become frozen clocks, candlesticks, coat racks. They'll just become pieces of furniture. That's it. And there's this agonizing scene at the end when the petal falls, the beast is dying, and everyone in the house is just frantically feeling death creeping up inside of them. They can feel it coming. And old friends are looking at each other and saying, you know, Cogsworth and Lumiere, it was an honor serving with you all this time. So long, old friend. And then they freeze, and it's just a clock. It's just a candlestick. And Mrs. Potts is screaming for her son, and going, Chip, where are you? My son, where is he? And all of a sudden she freezes and she's gone. And everything in the castle just dies. But you know the story? Love comes in, and through this one act of love, life rushes through the castle. But it's not like they just get brought back to life as talking pieces of furniture, like what they were right before. They get resurrected to the fullest version of themselves, to the people and the creation that they were meant to be all alone. And all is restored and all is made new. Because that is new heavens and new earth. That is the end of our story. Because when we die, the story's not over. And when we are resurrected with Christ, it's not like we turn back into these versions of ourselves. We get brought back to paradise back to the garden, back to who Adam and Eve were before the fall, we get brought back, resurrected to the fullest versions of ourselves, to the people we were meant to be all along. And we will live forever in resurrected bodies with the resurrected Jesus on a resurrected creation, on a resurrected earth, with resurrected mountains that are no longer under the curse, resurrected rivers, we will be able to, like, I was talking yesterday when we were on a hike and I was like running through it and I was thinking, how awesome is it going to be in the new heavens and the new earth to go explore these trails and these very mountains and not get out of breath, okay? Because they're <laughs> going to be in resurrected bodies. This is what we have to look forward to. This is how much the author loves us, is that he has told us the end of the story and he's saying, look, I know it's dark. I know things are broken. I know that you are suffering. But I promise this story has a beautiful ending, if you will just trust me. This is what the author has promised us. This is the end of our story. Or actually, I should probably say this is the beginning of our story. <laughs> because this part of our story, this life we live here on earth, is fleeting. It passes like a vapor in the wind, the Bible says. But when we are resurrected, the story will just begin. And it will go on and on forever. So I'm going to read you maybe my favorite words. This is a bold statement. Maybe, maybe my favorite words that have ever been written outside of the Bible. It's the last paragraph of the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia. The children have been resurrected into the new Narnia. And C.S. Lewis says, and they lived happily ever after. But he says it in a way that only he can say it. He says, all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, 
in which every chapter is better than the one before. Okay. I want to close doing something very unique. I'm a little self-conscious about it because I don't want this to come across as any sort of self-promotion. But I want to play you a song that I wrote based on this passage because it's been a blessing to me and I would hope that it would be a blessing to you guys. But um, it's called Further Up and Further In. And it's the idea that even in our darkest moments, when this world is just crumbling and falling, the story's not over and there's more to look forward to. And I feel like this is a fitting close to what we've been talking about this week. Um, so I hope you enjoy And I hope that um, 
you know, I love I love music, which is which is why I wanted to share that with you because I think that uh, music can oftentimes tell a beautiful story, and so I felt like it was a fitting end to this class on stories to end with um, a song about how in our worst moments the story's not over, and we have that to look forward to. Uh, so let me pray for us, and then we'll be done. God, you are so good. I mean, even just the fact that you created us, as Richie's talked about this week, you didn't create us because you needed us. You created us because you wanted us to share in the love of the Trinity. And even then, when we messed it all up, when we ruined it, when everything fell under a curse because of us, you wrote yourself into the story and redeemed everything. And you've given us the end of the story so that we can put our hope in you and know that in our darkest moments, when this story feels like it's going nowhere, that we have you to trust in, that we have you to hope in, that we have the resurrection to look forward to. So would you put that hope in our hearts so that we would walk in that truth and the light of that truth day in and day out? Would you help us to believe? It, Lord, we struggle to believe. So help our unbelief and help us to see that this is true and that this is our future and that right now we can walk with you and share that love of the author with everyone around us and enjoy and worship you in all things. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. I get to the raving about your classes. Hey. I hop around and